From PRX and Radiotopia, this is the Memory Palace. Thank you to Audible.com for helping us put the Halloween decorations up here at the Palace. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment, information, and educational programming. Just download it to one of your devices and listen anywhere. And right now, Audible is offering Memory Palace listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. So you could take that and you could listen to possibly my favorite nonfiction book of all time, The Power Broker, Robert Caro's epic biography of Robert Moses, the man who remade New York City. It's incredible, and it's on there on Audible. It's just one of 180,000 titles available on audible.com. So just go to audible.com slash memory and start your free trial and get your free audiobook today. That's audible.com slash memory. It's super easy, and you, like me, will be hooked on Audible. And now before we get going with this episode, a very, very special thanks to the folks who have donated to Radiotopia, home of the Memory Palace and home to many of the finest podcasts out there. Last episode, I told you guys that Slack, the best messaging platform for working in teams, would give us 25 grand if we could get 5,000 people to donate at any level by the 26th of the month. Well, as I record this on the 26th, nearly 7,000 people have decided to help us keep telling great stories. And that is fantastic. Thank you so much. And also fantastic, Slack has decided to go even bigger. And so now they're going to throw in an extra $50,000 if we can hit a new goal. And I think we might be able to do it with your help. So 15,000 donors at any level. That's 15,000 people who've decided that they want to support independent media and keep the Memory Palace and 99% Invisible and Criminal and all of the other shows we're making here at Radiotopia strong. Jump in and join us. The podcasts are free to listen to, but they are not free to make, I guarantee. So do what you can to help us make them, and we will do what we can to make them great. I know I will. In fact, I'm going to wrap up this introduction so I can go work on the next episode. And while I do that, why don't you go to radiotopia.fm and make that donation. That's radiotopia.fm. And thank you very much. And here's episode two of this uh, five-episode little fall season. It's a different kind of Halloween story. It's episode 77, Butterflies. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate Tamayo. There was a mysterious knock that kept men in vast mansions up in the dead of night. Disturbed by this sound, the defied explanation and bedeviled scientists. And so a man named Thomas Midgley who looked like a man named Thomas Midgley. Kind-eyed, balding, round-faced, round glasses, was put on the case. And I'll tell you right up front that he cracks it. For the case of the mysterious knock has a solution. Thomas Midgley will follow a series of clues and draw a conclusion, and it will be the correct one. And I'll strip out any of the red herrings and false leads he may have stumbled on during his investigation. Because that part of the story, the mystery, that is the part that is knowable, with a straightforward chain of cause and effect. And you'll forgive me if I cling to that little bit of comfort. Anyway, to the beginning. Thomas Midgley was born in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania in 1889 to an upper middle class family. There's an anecdote from the life of young Tom that I'd like to share. It seems to have some bearing on the rest of his story and how the boy makes the man. I can't say I'm entirely sure that it does. Because how can we say with any certainty that there's a direct line between one experience, 
one influence and some outcome later on. But back to it. Young Thomas Midgley loved baseball and became obsessed with the spitball, with how some major leaguers had taken to doctoring baseballs, smearing them with petroleum jelly or tar or tobacco spit, and how that would change the way wind resistance played upon a pitch ball and gave it a chaotic and unpredictable trajectory on its way to the plate. Young Tom spent a summer methodically testing different substances, applying sticky thing after sticky thing, until he came upon the sap of a particular variety of North American elm tree that gave him the desired effect. He could throw the ball and have no sense of what would happen once it left his hand. So that boy grows up and goes to Cornell and gets a job working in a lab for General Motors where he was put on the case of the mysterious knock. The facts were these. The internal combustion engine, the, ugh, sorry, engine of the new 20th century wasn't all that it could be. Often when things were combusting internally, the tiny explosion of fuel and spark that pushed the pistons up and down, that in turn moved other things to make the wheels in the bus go round and round, caused a loud knocking sound. Engines would break, cars would struggle, planes would sputter. And those men in their mansions were up all night because they knew the knocking was keeping the future at bay. A future with planes that flew higher and farther. Cars that were reliable enough so the average family would be willing to buy one. Everything, vehicles, commerce, America, could be moving faster, but for the knock. So Thomas Midgley figured out that he could add something to gasoline that would fix the problem and stop the knocking. It took him six years to figure out what, going methodically, block by block, through a copy of the periodic table of elements that he kept folded up in his wallet, until he found his elm tree sap, tetraethyl lead. The next year, the three top finishers at the Indianapolis 500 auto race ran on leaded gasoline. And his bosses started a venture called the Ethel Company to make it. And they made Thomas Midgley its vice president. Frank Durer was 12 when he went to work at the factory and abandoned the Brandywine River. This was about the same time when Tom Midgley, about the same age, was perfecting his screwball. We don't know much about what Frank Durer did in that factory, just that he spent his adolescence making gunpowder for DuPont. We don't have many more details than that. He was just another kid in another factory. But we know the work was hard. We know that it was dangerous. And we know that he was still there on the job some 20 years later. And that he did the work with enough good cheer to earn him the nickname Happy. That's what people called him. And sometime around 1921, Happy Durr was transferred to the new ethyl plant in Deepwater, New Jersey. First came the butterflies, flitting through the factory, catching the light that filtered in through the closed window near the roof line. They'd land on you sometimes while they worked. One would set on your shoulder. You'd brush it away. And there it would be again, balanced in the back of your hand, spreading its yellow wings. Some days they'd fill the room. It was the damnedest thing. The house of butterflies. That's what they call the factory at Deepwater. 
such an odd butterflies in the factory there one second and gone then there again but never really there at all it was the damnedest thing a man named Harry Zanes was the first to go mad first the butterfly hallucinations then the nightmares then he couldn't eat then his heart started racing and his muscles started twitching and then he got violent and the screaming started and they had to put him in a straitjacket and tie him to a bed where he flailed teeth clenched and grinning he survived but never really recovered Happy Doer was the first to die he started raving and twitching he died at home in a straitjacket too the end was mercifully quick he was 33 years old he worked for DuPont for 25 years making explosives, but was killed by spending a month in the House of Butterflies. All told, five men died at the ethyl plant in deep water. 300 others got sick. Many never fully recovered. The papers were all over it. There was a big blowout in the New York Times. It is a heartbreaking read. There were government inquiries. Thomas Midgley spent much of 1924 speaking in front of boards of health. The ethyl company pulled the product from the shelves while all this was going on. And there were two questions. The first, what happened to those people in deep water? But that one was obvious to anyone who knew anything about working with lead. The men were poisoned. Get lead on your skin. Breathe it in. It gets in your blood, in your chest, in your bones. Too much of it and you end up like Happy Durer. Thomas Midgley certainly knew this. There was a point during his own research when he had to stop working because it had gotten hard for him to breathe, and he trembled uncontrollably. He convalesced in Miami, an option unavailable to Happy Door. But this tragedy at Deepwater, Midgley and other industry scientists argued, while unfortunate, was preventable. Mistakes were made, and they would be addressed. There was no reason to halt progress. No reason to hold back the next great American industry with pointless regulation. No reason to kowtow to the fanatical health cranks, as Thomas Midgley called the doctors and scientists who were raising concerns about lead and gasoline. He called them that in a letter he wrote from Miami while he was having trouble breathing and controlling the movements of his own body. The government was persuaded. The second question was about the product itself. Was leaded gasoline safe? Midgley said emphatically yes. He even poured it on his hands and breathed in fumes during a press conference to prove it. Other scientists were less emphatic. The scientists who didn't work for the chemical companies or the auto industry. The government took comfort in, or perhaps cover behind, a series of studies funded by industry that suggested people who used ethyl gas regularly over a period of months showed no ill effects. But the independent scientists said of course there weren't. Those effects wouldn't show up after a few months. The problem wasn't even the pumping of gas or the breathing of fumes coming out of the tailpipe. It was what was going to happen years, maybe 25 years down the road, when those lead molecules expelled from those tailpipes were still floating around the atmosphere. The government suggested they study it again in 25 years then, and made no provisions to do so. 
and the ethyl company was back in business. And so was Midgley. Having solved the mystery of the knock and successfully fought off those who would undo his achievement, Midgley turned to another case. Not only was the profit potential huge if he solved it, he'd be saving lives. And that must have felt good to him just then. The facts were these. The refrigerator, the modern one, dates to about 1915, the time of the mysterious knock. They are remarkable machines. Even the old ones, maybe especially the old ones. Motors and pumps and compressors had to work in intricate polyphony to keep a mixture of chemicals in perfect balance and at a precise temperature. It could all fall into disharmony very easily if it got jostled or bumped. A hose could break, a valve could slip, and the chemicals and gases would come out, and each of them was toxic. So people had to keep their refrigerators outside for safety. And even when they were running smoothly, the temperature could easily get out of whack. So next thing you know, you're chipping away at the inside of the freezer with an ice pick, and you slip and you poke a hole in the side, and you die which was the fate of several Frigidaire customers in the 1920s. And so Thomas Midgley took out the periodic table from his wallet and started working his way through until he came to a compound with one carbon atom and four fluorine atoms. And in April of 1930, on a stage in a ballroom in Atlanta at the annual meeting of the American Chemical Society, he lit a candle and sucked in these chlorofluorocarbons from a tube and breathed them out and blew out the candle and didn't blow up or pass out. And there is nothing in the minutes of this meeting that confirms this, but I'd imagine the crowd went nuts. Because here was the man who had invented ethyl and then fought off the health fanatics to keep it on the shelves. And here he was again, remaking the world, making air conditioning possible, the shipping of food, a refrigerator in every home. That summer he was elected to the Chemical Society's board, into the vice presidency of the new company formed to market and manufacture his new refrigerant. And the titles kept coming. He won award after award and lived in a manner that reflected his key role in facilitating modern life twice over. He bought an 80-acre farm, collected fine wines, invented a system that used a telephone technology to water and inject his four-acre lawn with pesticides and fertilizer. And he tested strain after strain of grass until the whole thing looked like a putting green. When war came to Europe and ethyl-filled RAF fighters repelled the Luftwaffe, Thomas Midgley volunteered his services to his government, eager to crack his next mystery, to invent the future of warfare. But his own future was short. On a crisp autumn afternoon in 1940, he had lunch with his son at a country club and he started to feel sick. By the next morning, he was paralyzed. When he did his own analysis of the incident sometime later, he put the odds of a man of his age contracting polio as the same as picking a particular playing card out of a stack piled as high as the Empire State Building. He was flabbergasted that his life had taken such an unpredictable turn. And he doubted that even he could find a cure but he thought his own ingenuity could provide him with a better life at least. After all, he must have thought, he had already done that for so many other people so many other times. So he built a pulley system, an elaborate contraption of ropes and harnesses, so he could lift himself out of bed and into his wheelchair in the morning. And it worked. 
until the morning that his wife came in and found him dead, choked by the tangled threads of an invention by Thomas Midgley, like the rest of us. For the inventions for which he received those awards, that brought him the acclaim in those 80 acres, poisoned the earth. That's, that's what they did. The health cranks, in short, were right. And by the 1960s, it was clear that all of the atoms released into the atmosphere by burning ethyl were still there. They were in the soil. They were in the water. They were in your blood. They are in my bones. If you live near a highway, if you lived in a city, if you were a baby at the time of your exposure, then more of them were in you. They knew that in the 60s. They were worried about it in the 1920s. And in 1986, leaded gas was banned entirely in the United States. Some 7 million tons of it had already been burned. And what of Thomas Midgley's other breakthrough? His four fluorine atoms in one carbon atom? Well, though he could breathe them in and blow out a candle on a stage in Atlanta with no harmful results, things were different in the upper atmosphere. Up there, especially in the polar vortex that swirls high above Antarctica, the compound would break down and the atoms would recombine until a hole opened up in the ozone layer. All because decades before, two mysteries crossed the desk of a particularly sharp in-house scientist working in R&D at a major American corporation. Today, decades later, scientists, doctors of public health, sociologists, are still trying to understand the breadth of the havoc caused by leaded gasoline. They tie environmental lead levels to respiratory diseases and deaths, to learning disabilities, hyperactivity, even violence and crime. Other scientists look up to the ozone layer. They trace straight, predictable lines between it and increases in skin cancer, cataracts, and blindness. They raise questions about the impact on plankton, on the chemical composition of the ocean itself, on the climate. There are those who would lay all of it, the countless millions of health problems, the courses of lives and societies and a planet altered on Midgley's grave. This company man, this salaried scientist, who with two discoveries invented the way so much of the world lived for so much of the last century. His biographer, his grandson, Thomas Midgley IV, doesn't dwell on the toll. He quotes those who point out that Ethel provided the edge to allied tanks and jeeps and planes that won the war in Europe. He proudly points out that the Enola Gay was fueled with leaded gas. Placing Thomas Midgley Jr., at the vanguard of a story of American might and progress that soars forever onward, never looking at what's been left there on the ground. It is impossible to entirely untangle the chain of cause and effect or to fully follow the chaotic path these molecules took when they left his hand. There are things he could have done. There are things he could have known, surely. Not all of them. One can't know what will happen to one's creation once it is free to roam the countryside. Or what might happen on the other side of the world when a butterfly flaps its wings. <laughs>